Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am got my Bible open to Colossians in chapter one. It says, He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuous strenuous strenuously, and I can't even say that, strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. That is Colossians 1, verse 28. And I'm so glad to have Rob Blue back on the show. He is the executive editor of The Daily Signal. And Rob, welcome to the show. It's great to be back, Bill. Thanks for having me. Well, now that summer is sort of officially over, did you know that Americans were expected to eat about 7 billion hot dogs all summer with 150 <laughs> million hot dogs on the 4th of July? I'm curious, how many hot dogs did the Bluey family eat this summer? <laughs> well, my middle child loves hot dogs. I think he'd eat a hot dog at every meal. So <laughs> I'd have to add up the days, I guess, of summer. Yeah. What are there, about 100 plus? So yeah. uh, lots of hot dogs. Uh, we're certainly going to miss uh, summer. Lots of terrific family memories uh, this summer. We even, while I was away and happened to have the chance to talk to you, we have a, a new puppy who oh, was wow. just about... 10 weeks old. So, so it's, uh, it's been you know, fantastic. We just celebrated my, my youngest daughter, Savannah's second birthday. So it's been uh, a, a great, uh, great time. And, and Bill, um, even though we've had a setback, at least in the Washington DC area, when it comes to re- the resurgence of COVID cases, as I know many people across the country have as well, uh, we're doing our part to try to stay safe and healthy. And I hope all of your listeners are as well. Yeah, thank you, Rob. I understand that uh, two countries that are the most vaccinated, Israel and uh, Iceland, also have surging uh, COVID cases as well. So this is a tricky one for sure. Oh, yeah. I, I, I can tell you that um, increasingly it seems like individuals that have been vaccinated um, are having these breakthrough cases. Uh, and so uh, I, I know of uh, a handful myself of, uh, of friends and others who are in that situation. And so even uh, those who have, have taken the vaccine find themselves in that situation. I will say, fortunately, the case, the, uh, the, the symptoms that they're experiencing aren't as severe and none of them had to be hospitalized or anything like that. So we pray for everybody's recovery. But yes, we're not out of the, out of the fight yet. And uh, I think that, um, you know, our, our you know, there's going to be a number of things that we'll have to do going forward to try to figure out our best ways to, to fight this. And as as you know, we've been heavily invested at, uh, at the Daily Signal and the Heritage Foundation in trying to put forward a path that uh, both balances our economic recovery and our, our, our um, health recovery. And uh, I think sometimes that that gets out of whack a little bit one way or the other, and it really throws off the uh, the dynamic of what our country is. And we saw that in the Friday jobs report, which were uh, significantly lower than expectations. So um, mm-hmm. we still have a ways to go even when it comes to, to getting people back to work. Yeah. Rob, we are now celebrating the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and it was a time that the compassion we showed to one another uh, 20 years ago and the resolve we demonstrated to the world and to each other in the face of that that loss, we, we, I think we really unified as one 20 years ago. Oh, we, 
We certainly did. I mean, you look no further than the approval ratings of the president at the time, George W. Bush, who uh, you know, your listeners will remember came into office after a very contentious election. Um, there was obviously a, a decision that came down from the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, which handed him victory. And uh, there were many people, I think, uh, Al Gore supporters and Democrats who were not willing to give uh, the president uh, the, the time of day or really had any interest in working with him. There was a flip in the U.S. Senate uh, earlier in in, uh, in 2001 when a Republican uh, became a, uh, switched uh, sides and basically started caucusing with the Democrats, and that threw things into chaos on Capitol Hill. And uh, just when it seemed that things couldn't get any worse, um, 9-11 happened, and of course our country went into a moment of grieving. But you're right, Bill, uh, we also found ways to come together and uh, to do some remarkable things, um, particularly the first responders and all those who were on the scene of the terrorist attacks, um, helping their, their fellow Americans and, and other citizens uh, really uh, overcome uh, the grief and the heartache and, um, and the death that, uh, that came on that day. So it's a moment to reflect on, on their sacrifices uh, this Saturday, just as we have. And, and 20 years, obviously, is a momentous milestone um, for us to, to remember. And I hope that uh, to all the parents out there who uh, have kids, like me, who weren't alive on 9-11, will use it as an opportunity to, to teach their kids about the lessons learned from that time and, um, and hopefully talk to them about what we can learn from it and be prepared for the future. Right. And Rob, you and I were back in high school when that happened. So, um, you know, maybe we can just share uh, some of our experiences as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, not not quite that young, but not too far off. I was um, on, on September 11th, 2001. I had recently moved to Washington, D.C. I graduated from college in 2001 <laughs> and found a job in Washington. And Bill, I uh, was, was there for about a week, I believe. I wow. had moved down at the end of August, uh, maybe two weeks. Started a new job at an organization called the Student Press Law Center, which had its offices in Roslyn, Virginia, in Arlington County, um, which is not too far from the Pentagon. And in a I believe we're on the ninth floor, so you know we had a, a view of the the city. And I remember being there and uh, and getting the news early in the morning. Um, our day started early, and uh, and watching what was unfolding on television, being all alone. My parents were in New York. Um, my girlfriend at the time, later wife, was in Connecticut. And so I uh, went uh, home to an empty apartment and, uh, and saw things uh, unfold. And, of course, tr communication was entirely different. We didn't have Facebook or Twitter. Um, you know, I remember the cell phone lines being jammed because everyone was calling each other to make sure that they were okay. And, uh, and of course, uh, the plane striking the Pentagon, um, you know, having so close uh, to where I was living, only a couple of miles from my apartment at the time, was was quite scary and, um, you know, really questioning, you know, should I, gee, should I really be in Washington at, at this, this time? Uh, but then you're right, Bill, seeing the country respond in the way that it did and, and rally uh, together um, was, was just a remarkable thing. And so, you know, it's, um, we all have, we'll never forget uh, where we were at that, that moment mm -hmm. in time and uh, the, the impact that it's, uh, it's had on our lives. And uh, there's so many uh, memorials and dedications in small towns all across this country and big cities uh, to uh, the survivors of 9-11 and, and those who perished uh, that we need to remember. Uh, because uh, obviously, as we've seen recently in Afghanistan, this, this fight against terrorism is not over. Um, and uh, there's a, you know, still um, battles to be waged, unfortunately, even here 20 years later. Mm -hmm. The whole thing was surreal, Rob. And I remember seeing the movie that came out on the uh, passengers that overtook the flight that was headed uh, for the Pentagon. And I think it was Flight 93. 
And yes. thinking of that, uh, the bravery of the men and women on that plane that made a difference um, and it cost them their life. But, oh my, I mean, as I tried to process all that went on on 9-11, it is surreal, uh, even 20 years later. Bill, there's a there's a great uh, program that's going to be airing this Saturday on uh, on a YouTube channel called Drive Through History, and um, uh, my colleague James Carafano is uh, who's a national security expert and a retired military. Um, he is uh, one of the the featured uh, guests who who visits uh, the site of the the World Trade Center today and walks us through the experiences of that day. And I've had the opportunity to preview the film, and I think it's just a great educational piece. Again, it's Drive Through History, and encourage your listeners to check it out. And, and so many of the other documentaries and other um, things that have been made about the day, you know, I think that there's a real reluctance on the part of some news organizations to show footage, because it can be so traumatic um, of the planes crashing into the World Trade Center. But I think that um, at least once a year, we should remind ourselves of what happened that day uh, so we can study history and, and make sure that uh, we take steps to to prevent it from happening again. Uh, the terrorists really caught us by surprise. There's no doubt about mm-hmm. that. And um, they left us shocked. And that's why we had a 9-11 uh, commission to, to look into this more more clearly. And Bill, uh, you've had my uh, my boss, uh, Kay James, on your show mm-hmm. before. And, and uh, she this morning uh, shared a story with all of us um, at the Heritage Foundation uh, who She was running the Office of Personnel Management uh, for the federal government at the time. She was the director of that office and reported to the president of the United States. And so she was in charge of all of the federal workers, the, the civil service. And she, said, she told the story today about how uh, she made a controversial decision that she would not close down um, kind of in perpetuity or indefinitely the, the federal government. She told people uh, that if we did that, that would be a sign to the terrorists that they were able to win. And we needed to, to keep pressing forward here in the United States. And that's exactly what we did. And so I think that, um, you know, there will be challenges in the future, but it's always important to look back in history and learn from our lessons of the past. Mm-hmm. Rob, how do Mr. and Mrs. Bluey talk to their boys about this? I know Savannah Grace is too little, but um, what about your sons? Yeah. So, um, geez, you know, I, I really wish I could have the title of the book and maybe I, I will after the break, I'll, I'll find it. But um, my older son and I read a, read a book, a uh, children's book, which was really uh, just a, a great way of, of explaining the, the day to him and what, what transpired. Um, uh, you know, it was kind of a historical fiction book. And, um, and I thought it, it, it did a good way of presenting it. I'm planning to show them this film I was just talking to you about, mm. this hour-long special on drive through history, because I think it does it in a very factual way. Uh, it's not too graphic, um, but obviously it does have images. So if they're, you know, there's a warning on it if your, your children are sensitive um, to seeing some of the footage. But, uh, but Bill, I mean, so many, so many kids were defined by this experience when they were in school or, or coming of age. Um, I think that uh, for those who were born after 9-11, like my own children, it's important for them to, to understand beyond what they learn in school, to hear from their parents about what our experiences were like. Because think about all the changes that ushered in after 9-11, uh, the, the things that, um, that we take you know, for granted today, or <laughs> maybe sometimes don't take for granted, but uh, think about air travel. Uh, we had the we didn't have the TSA before 9/11, and now anytime you go to get on an airplane, I mean you have to go through layers of security to make sure that no one can can sneak on a plane like those uh, like those terrorists did. So so many different changes in our own in our own culture and society. Um, the Department of Homeland Security didn't exist. That was a, a new creation as a result of that. And and our our airlines, uh, you know, instituted a whole whole series of of changes to you know 
the security of airplanes. So um, a number of a number of things happen, and I think we can learn those lessons and, and hopefully be be better off in the future. That is so true. I didn't. I, I wasn't aware that TSA happened after nine eleven. Yes. The, yeah. That was uh, that was all part of the formation of the uh, Department of Homeland Security. Don't get me wrong. There was security, obviously, right. at airports uh, before that, but it really intensified um, in the period after nine eleven. Yeah. So the days of going down to the gate to meet your your loved ones that ended right around then, didn't it? Do Do you remember that? <laughs> oh, I mean, yes. isn't that amazing to think back that you could go in, walk into an airport, and uh, greet somebody as they were walking out of the gate? Uh, I remember doing that with my own father when he would be on a business trip, and just um, a totally different experience. Oh. Obviously, could afterwards. you have been any more excited watching him come off the plane? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, those those were just tremendous moments. I mean, I, I guess you could still get it when you walk through that security exit, but it's just not the same feeling. No, it's not the same, for sure. Right, Rob, let me take a little break. Rob Blue is my guest. He's the executive editor uh, at The Daily Signal. We'll take a brief break and be right back. Executive editor at the Daily Signal. Always glad to talk to Rob. Rob, I'm curious as to what you feel about the decision-making process on exiting Afghanistan. Well, I mean, I, I think that um, across the board, Republicans and Democrats, um, you actually have some agreement on the fact that it was not handled as well as it should have been. And um, I think that's particularly true as you hear these stories of Americans and and some of the Afghans who. Uh, support of the United States uh, have have struggled to to leave the country uh, since the United States departed last week. Uh, I think that's that's unfortunate. Um, there were a, a great number of people who I think uh, comp- you know sacrificed a lot and and now uh, find themselves in a compromised position uh, because the Taliban will be unforgiving when it comes uh, particularly to the Afghans um, who uh, will will now be facing retribution for for giving aid to the United States. I particularly feel for for the U.S. citizens who weren't able to make it out in time for for whatever reason, and I think that um, uh, the, the Taliban and others who will, will now attempt to hold them hostage uh, is a very unfortunate situation. So there were a number of things that could have been done differently. I think uh, it was ill 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 advised to close down Bagram Air Force Base. Uh, that would have been a much better uh, facility, uh, 30 miles from Kabul, to uh, be able to transport people out of the country. Uh, as opposed to the Kabul airport, which, as we saw, was right in the middle of the city, uh, vulnerable to security threats like um, like the bombing that, that took the lives of, of 13 Americans and, and many more Afghans. So uh, just a number of, of uh, unforced errors on the part of the United States and in, in its um, in its handling. I think that um, President Biden is is probably correct that, that a large number of Americans um, are our support his decision to leave the country. I, I have no doubt that he's he's correct in his assessment of that. I think that there are Americans who 
support leaving Afghanistan, but wish that it was done in a different, um, less chaotic way that uh, didn't result in the loss of life. Rob, I find myself, uh, I was up the last couple of nights, kind of in the middle of the night, thinking, praying, and I was um, had seen a picture of uh, an Afghan woman begging, sitting on the pavement, begging uh, in, a, in a, you know, the full um, burqa, um, just with the netting exposing her eyes, with her little beautiful daughter sound asleep on her lap. And I don't know, that picture just struck me so hard. And I thought, well, how and what kind of treatment will these women receive going forward? Because the Taliban, they play by their own rules. In fact, I, I just saw some reporting coming out this afternoon. Uh, the, the Taliban um, had a press conference and, and named uh, some of the leaders of the, the interim government that will um, take shape, be taking shape there in Afghanistan. And while they seem to be saying some of the, the right things um, at this time, uh, their actions, uh, I think, in many ways speak louder than the words. And so while they may have be quite savvy in terms of a PR campaign, uh, from the podium there, uh, what we see is the the retributions and the killings and the beatings and 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 the raping of of women. I mean, I think that those things are all um, stories that uh, hopefully journalists there will continue be, to be able to expose and and shed light on what is really taking place under the Taliban's rule. Uh, Bill, it's important I think to also recognize that the Taliban is not like a political party in the United States in that they're all, they all subscribe to the same set of beliefs. I mean, they obviously believe in Islamic law, but in many ways it's uh, quite, um, it's different factions and, and, a, and a faction in one province uh, might see things differently than another. And so I think that bringing everyone together in some sort of unified government is going to be a big challenge, which mm-hmm. is why you've already seen some opposition leaders uh, pop up and, and attempt to, uh, to sow some of the division and, uh, and I don't know how it's ultimately going to end. Uh, I'm sure that uh, you saw uh, General Mark Milley's comments, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, saying that he fully expects there to be a civil war in Afghanistan and for terrorists to find safe harbor there. So um, that's not a good assessment from our military leader. Um, and uh, I think it just goes to show the threats that, uh, that await us in the future. Rob, do you think the uh, Taliban hopes to be a respected government in Afghanistan, or do you think they're not then interested in that? Well, that's what that's what they're saying publicly. But I, again, I think it's difficult to ass, to assess whether that's going to be reality. Um, obviously, there there are a number of things that I think they would like to continue to see, including the foreign aid uh, continue to flow to Afghanistan uh, for an impoverished country that that needs that kind of foreign support. Uh, the Taliban would surely welcome that and would want a seat at the table. Uh, I think also its posture toward the United States will be different than other countries. Uh, Pakistan, for instance, has really close ties um, with uh, the Taliban. Uh, they've uh, that dates back decades, and uh, and so you can expect a relationship with Pakistan to improve. Well, I would anticipate the relationship with India is not is going to you know not be as great uh, given given the, you know their um, their tensions in the past. Uh, we've already seen uh, in in recent months uh, the Taliban uh, cozying up to to China. I think China, being a regional player there, will attempt to uh, you know make inroads and uh, and try to sow division with the United States as a rival of of the United States. So there's a number of things that uh, we don't know yet, but I think that when it comes to uh, their role on the on the world stage, they probably did learn some things from the last go around. 
they certainly have more power today than they did in 2001. I think that's one of the shocking things to think about, that after 20 years of war, the Taliban uh, is now more fully in control of Afghanistan today than it was on 9-11. Hmm. Rob, what, what is your assessment of the Afghan army um, r- losing this war so quickly with the Taliban? Well, a, a couple of things. Uh, number one, um, you started to see that the Afghan army, in many cases without even a fight, uh, just just gave up or, okay. or, or was, was willing to switch sides. So it's not that there was a prolonged battle. I mean, this happened so quickly. Um, it's not like the Taliban came through and, and, and just from military brute force um, was able to, to accomplish this. Uh, the Afghan army just switched sides in, in many cases. Okay. And I think that there were some factors for that. I mean, did they truly believe in in the the government that um, the United States helped set up? And and maybe the answer is no. Maybe they there there were some underlying factors that um, that led to them to to make that assessment. Uh, I think that uh, you know the fact that um, as I spoke about earlier, the, the 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 different factions and the kind of the tribal nature of Afghanistan, I'm sure contributed uh, to it as well. Um, after all, uh, you know, even if even if the army were to fight, uh, it, it you know would have been a prolonged battle, and they have their families and other people to think about. And so I think that they probably weighed their options and decided to do this. But I think it goes back to something we had a guest on the Daily Signal podcast um, who served in Afghanistan on a number of tours, and he explained that uh, there was a period of time in the uh, during the George W. Bush administration when the United States could have left Afghanistan and could have left. Hamid Karzai, who was the leader at the time, um, and the the local um, authorities in Afghanistan with a relatively stable situation and that would have been in a position where they could have hopefully carried on the safety and security of that country. Instead, we decided to stay. And I think that a lot of Afghans resented that and they didn't want us in their country. And as a result of that, uh, there was this anti-American hostility that built up and why um, you know, many people are cheering the fact that we are gone. Now, there's a significant number that, that don't want to live in fear every day and I think uh, w- would like to see the country rid of the Taliban. But uh, the fact of the matter is there, and it seems like they're going to have some staying power, at least for the short term. That is a very interesting analysis. I appreciate that, Rob. I just got a text from uh, my wingman, Terry, who says it's uh, great to have Rob back on the show and that He's all excited that you, he mentioned you getting a new puppy. I haven't found out what the puppy is yet. Uh, yes, well, the the puppy is a, a golden doodle, oh, okay. and uh, this was a, a specific request of of my oldest uh, son uh, because he took mom and dad's allergies into account. <laughs> he wanted to make sure we got a hypoallergenic dog, but uh, but also a, a smaller dog. So the dog will only be about eighteen pounds nice. in, in uh, when it's, when it's fully grown. So that was important to us because we didn't want a big dog knocking around. The two-year-old, yeah, <laughs> too well, much. Although the two of them together, Bill, it's a dangerous combination already. <laughs> yeah, well, you have my email address, Rob. Send me a picture. I will. All right. Thanks, Thanks so much Bill. for being on the show, Rob Blue. He's been my guest, executive editor at the Daily Signal. After a short break, we're going to come back. Uh, Ron Deal is going to be our guest, talking about blended families. That's all coming up next.
Did you know that 40% of all married couples with children are blended families? Did you know that 15% of all first marriages form blended families? Blended families are also called step families are becoming more prevalent. And now with at least one third of all American marriages forming blended families, people are looking for help and counsel and navigating the expectations and the challenges and my guest is doing that. Uh, Ron Deal is one of the most widely read and uh, viewed experts on blended families in the country. He's the president of Smart Step Families and directs the Blended Family Ministry at Family Life and has authored more than a dozen books. His new book is Preparing to Blend, The Couple's Guide to Becoming a Smart Step Family. Ron, welcome back to the show. Hey, Bill. It's good to talk to you again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, congratulations on your new book. Thank you. Yeah. It's always fun to give birth to one of these things. <laughs> I bet. I bet. There's been lots and lots over the years of premarital resources for couples and yeah. community ministry leaders and all that. What what makes this particular book, Preparing to Blend, uh, different? Well, first of all, the the recipient is different. You know, couples getting married where one or both of them are bringing at least one child, if not more, to the wedding, they're not just becoming a couple and learning how to leave and cleave. They're becoming a family instantly. And along with that is all of the complexities and dynamics of being a family with new relationships. So yes, they're trying to bond their marriage and establish themselves as a couple and strengthen that so that they can lead their family forward. But they're instantly thrown into parenting, step-parenting, uh, dealing with former spouses from the other home. Um, by the way, weddings tend to reverberate stress between the households. So you may have had a kind of a decent co-parent relationship, for example, during the single-parent years. But when one of the, you know, one of the persons marries, sometimes that ripples into, and now all of a sudden you have stress going between the households, and that means kids are stressed, and that means they're a little more on edge as it comes to bonding with a step-parent or step-siblings in their life. Mm -hmm. So there's all those adjustments, new home, new sometimes new school, new church, uh, the transitions that take place with just shifting from one place into another place where you're living. There's just a whole lot there, and so none of the premarital programs of the past took any of that into account. And so preparing to blend, we, we, we need a resource that helps them not just be a couple, but learn how to be a family. Mm -hmm. Ron, you've identified a premarital counseling gap for pre-step family couples. What is that? Yeah, Bill. So I didn't know this when I started in this book project and, and did some research and discovered um, the vast majority of couples getting married and forming a blended family, get no preparation whatsoever before they jump in. As, as a matter of fact, 75% get nothing, no preparation at all. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, a lot of us go to churches where, hey, if you're going to use the sanctuary for your wedding or you're going to, one of the pastors is going to do the wedding even at another venue, you've got to go through some some, some sort of premarital counseling, some sort of preparation program or something. I think that's a really good standard. I think most people are so used to that that they're shocked to learn that most 
pre-blended couples just don't go through those programs. They don't get the opportunity. And if they do go through some premarital, again, it's so focused on the couple's relationship, it really does not prepare them to be a family. So therein lies the gap. Um, premarital counseling works. It is really helpful for couples. But if you don't get anything, then you miss out on all of the good that the, that could be provided to you. And also, you miss out on the church connecting to you at a very significant time in your life, a major transition about to take place. You, we want the church to be a part of people's moments um, of marriage. And so this, there's lots of reasons why we got to close that gap. Mm-hmm. Ron Deal is my guest. His book is Preparing to Blend, The Couple's Guide to Becoming a Smart Step Family. So, Ron, this book looks like it really helps couples create what I think you'd describe a little digital map of their blended family. And this, this little map really does help uh, navigate the transition of, of uniting two families together. You know, I've got some friends that uh, for years, uh, family therapists have used something called a genogram. It's, it's just a way of sort of mapping your family history and ancestry and the patterns of relationships that go on from one generation to the next. It's a very insightful tool. Well, I have some friends that created a website <laughs> specifically for couples forming blended families because that's their passion, where couples can go there and actually, you know, f- answer a few questions and get a digital map of their family. And so what's unique about it is I integrated that right into my book. It's one of the exercises that couples do in order to anticipate, to look forward and go, wow, okay, look at this. Our household is not just our household. It it includes three other households and lots of adults trying to parent these kids. And look at all these step uh, relationships, step siblings, step cousins, uh, uncles, aunts that are going to be involved in their lives. And let's look at the nature of those relationships, which ones are healthy, which ones are kind of, un, uh, you know, di- uh, difficult. Um, now let's jump into our kids' shoes. It gives us a way to see the realities of what we're creating so that we can anticipate and plan and uh, help our kids make the adjustment to our family. You know, at the end of the day, Bill, the more stress there is in the family transition into becoming a family, the harder it is for them to blend. But if we reduce that on the front end, we involve the kids in that process, we raise awareness for adults and for children, the transition gets easier and less stressful. Mm-hmm. That's what we're after. Nice. Ron, what kind of things, uh, if, if you, you've got these pre-blended couples, um, what kind of things do they need to make sure they got their eyes open to? You know, one of the things I just talked about is when people look at their digital map, mm-hmm. it's amazing how they, the adults often, their eyes just kind of go open. They go, oh, wow. You know, I knew you had two kids and I was going to, you know, I got two kids and we we're going to have four kids. In our, but I never saw life through the eyes of my children like I do when I'm looking at this map. All of a sudden, it's not just our household. It's your children have another household. My children have a deceased parent, for example, something like that. And that person is still alive in their heart. And then there's grandparents over here and grandparents here. Mm-hmm. My grand, my parents, your parents, look at that. When you look at all of it on paper, it helps you step into the shoes of, of a child. For example, that child could be 25 years old. That child could be 15 or five years of age. But you see life through the kid's point of view, and that helps you parent more wisely you're more strategic. It helps you plan better. Um, I think that eye-opening experience 
is really worthwhile. The other thing that's embedded in that is that you get a sense that, oh, wow, the past is not just the past. It is still a part of the present. You know, here's a deceased parent, for example. Well, they're not gone in terms of people's memories and hearts and traditions, and and the children certainly live with that person, you know, close to their heart as they move forward. How does that impact bonding with a step-parent? How does that impact step-siblings relating to one another when one has been through a great tragedy, a loss of a parent, and the other one hasn't? Um, those are the kinds of things you begin to notice and think about just from doing that digital map. That's one of 10 chapters in this book. Mm-hmm. Ron, in the book, I know you do talk about expectations that people are going to be having. And I think one common expectation, according to your book, is that marriage will repair what has been lost. Can you talk about that a little bit and maybe address uh, the ways in which couples should be thinking instead? You know, so I I think it's a deep-seated hope um, for many single parents that you know, they live every day with the sense that something's missing. Whether it was your choice, somebody else's choice, a, a divorce, a death of a parent, whatever that, whatever that narrative is, you feel like you want to fix what has been fractured. And I think it's this unsaid hope that, okay, when I marry you, you become the dad that my children don't have now in, a, in my home. You become the mom that, you know, kid's mother has died, you become the new mom in their life, and they now have everything that they would have had their mother not passed away. That's just not true. Now, I know people sort of know that that's not true, but they do on some level hope that it's true, which is why they end up putting so much expectation into the new family, the new relationships. And if there's any sort of struggle between a stepchild and a stepparent, for example, then all of a sudden you feel like you failed failed your child, you failed to create the home that you were really hoping for. And the the reality is the expectation was just misguided in the first place. You're not repairing. You're creating something totally new and different. When it's, it's the difference between life before the pandemic and life in a pandemic. It, it's a different world. It's not the same. There are different considerations. There are different dynamics and things that at play. It's the difference between driving an automobile with four wheels and driving and riding a bicycle with two wheels. It's powered different. You turn it different. You navigate it different. You have to balance differently. In a car, you don't think about balance. In a bicycle, you better think about balance. Mm -hmm. They're both vehicles. You're creating a family, that's for sure. But it's a different type of family, and you have to steer it the way it was designed to be steered. So if you're trying to repair... Here's the inadvertent thing. Not only do your expectations go too high, but then you feel disillusioned when you're not sure how to steer it. It's sort of like, no, the reality is you're on a bicycle now. You're you're not back in a car. You're on a bike, and you've got to learn how to manage the bike. And once you figure that out, well, then you learn how to balance. Then you learn how to steer. You learn how to power it. You learn what it takes to make it go. That's when families begin to click and the rewards begin to come. So we've got to start by recognizing those unrealistic expectations and then recalibrating them into something that is real. Mm -hmm. Ron, uh, that brings in all kinds of questions like, um, what should I expect 
when marrying someone who's lost a spouse or has been divorced? Yeah. You know, I, I think there's, there's just some natural differences. First of all, to some degree, loss is loss. I think anybody who's had a significant loss in their life shares some similar, you know, sadness and pain as they go through that loss. Um, but grieving is also very unique depending upon the type, the circumstances, what the person meant to you and that sort of thing. So somebody who has been divorced often is looking for a partner very different than what they had. You know, for whatever reason, that previous relationship didn't work. And, you know, they're often going, nope, that's not what I want anymore. I do know what I want that's different. Somebody who had a good marriage and lost their spouse to death, they're often looking for something very similar. And they may not even realize it until they start dating. It's sort of like, and I just thought every, every man would be sort of like, you know, I just thought our rhythms of life and the day and the things that you talk about and the things I talk I just thought those would be the same as they were in my first marriage. Well, really, you know, a new person adds up to a new us. And there's a whole new complexion there. And it, it's going to have its own life and be its own relationship. And so, again, recognizing, oh, I didn't even know I had an expectation, but I need to recalibrate that. I need to let that go or, you know, shift some of my thinking in a new direction. Otherwise, you keep trying to kind of put your new spouse in the old spouse's position, and that doesn't work. That mm-hmm. doesn't work. That Nobody likes that type of dynamic at all. Yeah. Ron, here's another question. How do we combine our finances? Yeah, well, you know, this is a big, hairy subject. <laughs> yeah, I got to say, a few years ago, a couple of friends of mine, we wrote a whole book on this subject. And so I always point people to the Smart Step Family Guide to Financial Planning if they really want to do a deep dive. In this book, Preparing to Blend, we do a, a, a chapter that summarizes some of the key points for engaged couples specifically who are really just getting started. But here's what it comes down to. You know, money can either inadvertently end up being a stressor and something that sort of pushes you apart, or you can make it into something that brings you together. When your values about money are the same, you know, driven by your faith in God, you know, he is my provider, not my paycheck. You know, that sort of heart, faith, perspective, both people share that. That's uniting. That brings you together. Now we got to figure out how we do bank accounts, but that's really not very important because God is our provider. And yet, blended families have some added logistics. Everybody's got to figure out how to share money. But what if you have a family business and you promised it to your son who's 22 and in college about to graduate and he thinks he's going to take over the family business, but now all of a sudden you have three stepchildren? Well, do you split it up? Do you share it with them? Does being fair mean you have to divide the family business four different ways? I mean, that's a harder question. That's a new question you didn't have to answer before. And what about insurance? What about who owns the house? Well, the house is in your name. Well, do you automatically put your spouse's name on the house? What if you're 60 years of age and you've been you're, you've widowed and you've been collecting Social Security benefits? You, you know, you can actually make some decisions that you, result in you losing your benefits when it comes to getting married a second time after the death of a spouse. But if you know the law, you can work around that so you keep the benefits, even moving into a new marriage. Those are the kind of things that we try to help people think about, anticipate, 
And, uh, and again, plan together how you're going to share those things so that money is an asset to your relationship, not uh, uh, something that divides it. Mm-hmm. Ron Deal is my guest. He's got a new book called Preparing to Blend, The Couple's Guide to Becoming a Smart Step Family. When we come back, I want to ask uh, about how long it will take a, a blended family to experience peace and harmony. We'll be right back. Read and viewed experts on blended families in the country. You can learn more about him at rondeal.org. You can also go to familylife.com backslash blended. So I don't know if I've asked you this before, Ron, but with the last name Deal, what were some of your nicknames growing up? Oh, man. Good deal, bad deal, (laughs) rotten deal. I always tell people, you know, then they throw something at me. I say, hey, I'm the best deal in town right here. Gotcha. Perfect. (laughs) So yeah, it's, sometimes you can use it to your advantage. Of course, <laughs> just spin it to your advantage. So, okay, a family is going to try to unite and blend. And how long will it take to experience some peace and harmony? You know, we know every couple that gets married, you know, needs a little bit of time. Sure. The, you know, the biblical wisdom on that is, hey, don't. If if a man's in the army and you go to war and he just got married, send him home for a year. Let let him bond with his wife. Let him solidify his household, and then. Uh, you know, getting back to work. But there's some wisdom in that. Uh, The average blended family, when you put kids and former relationships and trying to figure out parenting strategies and how we're going to navigate the home and all that, you know, on average, it takes five to seven years to kind of really settle the relationships and feel like we have a sense of familiness. It's the way I like to put it, a family identity, if Mm -hmm. you will, that's, that's pretty determined and shared by most family members. That's five to seven years. That, you know, that's a, pretty good chunk of time. And I think a lot of people underestimate that when they get married. I do think with intentionality, you can speed that process up, which is one of the things obviously we're trying to do in preparing to blend is help couples and their children. This is not just a book for couples. It is, it involves the children in the premarital counseling process, if you will, as well, so that they speed up their, their path into familiness. And Bill, uh, let me just add something here. This is sort of a do-it-yourself premarital counseling guide for couples, but I really, really, really want pastors and church leaders. I uh, talked with a, a, you know, two people this morning who run the premarital preparation program for their large mega church. And when the church gets on board with this thing, we've got a leader's guide that's a downloadable free thing, a website where people can get bonus material as the helper, the minister to these couples. Now you're walking with them through this material as they're learning to apply it into their life. That's the real bonus. Um, and I got to mention in a month in Atlanta, we have our summit on step family ministry for leaders who want to learn more about this. 
Um, it's a two-day event where they can learn how to do better premarital preparation for blended family couples. Mm-hmm. Ron, this might be one of the tougher questions, but how do you find how do couples find unity in some of the parenting challenges in blended families? Well, you, you can imagine, you know, just do a, let's make up a little scenario. Imagine a guy who's got three kids. He's got a 15-year-old, a 12-year-old, and, a, and an 8-year-old, right? And he's marrying a woman who has 10, 8, and 5. Well, okay, we got six kids all of a sudden. We have two different parenting styles, perhaps. You know, what if he kind of had pretty high standards and he's pretty, uh, you know, I speak and you guys jump and that's his expectation. It's kind of been their system for a long time. He's marrying this woman who has a system a little different than that. Her kids are used to maybe working mom a little bit, (laughs) getting out of having to do some of the chores, Uh, you know, throw all that in to one household and say, go, wow. You know, some kids are going, wow, we could never talk to our parent the way you talk to your parent. And and how is it that you get away with that? And, you know, we're doing all the chores and they're not hardly doing anything. All of a sudden, there's a lot of what seems like unfairness and injustice. And then you have the parent and the two parents trying to figure out what system they're going to use. I mean, how are we going to do this? How are we going to move forward and have some unity. I think that's one of the more difficult transitions that couples find in in blended family situations. Not everybody, but that is a frequent stressor for couples. So again, we we've got a a guided process, a whole chapter on this and we engage them in a dialogue that helps to kind of force them if you will or move them down a path of finding some unity about how they're going to parent. And if they get stuck, they've got a pastor, somebody who's right there with them to try to help them find how we're going to do this once we all get married and move in together. Mm-hmm. Ron, how, how do you plan the wedding with the kids in mind? And then what happens when a couple of kids say, I'm not going to that wedding? Yeah, Bill, I got to tell you, I when I was writing this book, the first, first draft, I had this chapter on planning a wedding towards the end of the book. Um, then I looked into some of the research about how significant weddings are for blended families, and I moved it way up. Mm. And I, even in the beginning, said, look, if you're getting married here in a short period of time, you need to skip to that chapter because I know you're planning a wedding, and you may be underestimating how important the wedding is and how to include the children in the process. And every couple that we floated this manuscript to early on, came back and they all commented on that chapter. Some of them commented on other chapters as being more relevant for them, but everybody said this is really important and we didn't we didn't think about it very much. Here's what we know. If when kids are invited into the planning of the wedding and are given the opportunity to speak into what role they want to play if at all, some people don't want to play a role at all. That's okay. You honor that, but at least you've given them a chance to tell you what they want to do and what they don't want to do. Then the wedding takes on meaning not just for the couple but for the children. At the end of the day, if kids are walking away going, wow, that was sort of weird. They just sort of said I do. I I worked with one couple where they were planning to elope, and they read the manuscript, and they said, we can't do that. It it just totally leaves the kids behind. We just come home and say we're a family, and they're like, what? When did that happen? So they totally revamped, decided not to elope, talked to the kids, went through the exercise as outlined, and – made some decisions with them, and it totally changed their wedding experience, and they just swear by it. I I think that's super important. And honestly, I don't think a lot of pastors are even really cognizant of this 
and don't uh, open the door to the op- the options that that parents and children could have together just because they too don't really realize how important that it really is. There's not a right way to do it. What we show people is the process of how to engage the children to figure out what's right for your situation. Mm. Ron, I appreciate your time today. Um, Preparing to Blend is Ron Deal's book, The Couple's Guide to Becoming a Smart Step Family. Um, Just got about 30 seconds left. I know you've got uh, a hope that people have when they walk away after reading your book, and that's Mm. to think through this thing well, huh? It is. It is. And, you know, I believe we have a God of second chances. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And for many, many people, uh, a strong, healthy, blended family marriage and the the environment that 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 provides for children is redemptive. Mm -hmm. It is a God-given opportunity for them to have something really good. And for children to have a healthy home where the marriage is stable creates some stability in their life when they've already experienced some instability. It's important. It's it's redemptive work. It's important for the church to be engaged in this and for couples to spend the investment of time in order to have a healthy marriage. We just want to try to help with that process. Mm-hmm. Ron, thank you so much. Always nice to have you on. Yeah, thanks. You Appreciate bet. it. Ron Deal has been my guest. And again, his book is called Preparing to Blend, The Couple's Guide to Becoming a Smart Step Family. All right, we'll take a little break. When we come back, uh, we've got Hour 2 just ahead. Todd Mullican's going to be joining me, and we're going to be uh, talking about learning how to accept our differences versus trying to change each other. And we're also going to talk about depression. That's coming up next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.